Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's turn to John chapter 9 for our sermon text this evening. John chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. As he passed by Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the question, that question the disciples ask of Jesus is very interesting. They, along with Jesus, pass by a man who is blind from birth, and it gets them thinking about sin. And they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They want to know whose sin caused this man's blindness. The Pharisees, who were the teachers of Israel at this time, believed that disease was in every case a curse of a particular sin. And they believed that someone's affliction could be pinpointed to that person's parents, especially if it was a congenital defect, something they had from birth. The Pharisees also believed in the transmigration of souls. Did you know that? The teaching that the soul of someone who has died goes to live in another body. So that soul continues on and passes from one body to another. Therefore, if the soul you received had sinned in a previous life, you could be punished for it. Perhaps the disciples were thinking along these lines too. So that's the background to the question of the disciples, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Their question assumes that his blindness is the result of some particular sin. So is disease like this man's blindness caused by sin? Let's think about that for a moment. Do sins or does sin have consequences? 
we would all agree that sin has consequences. Yes, I don't think I have to prove to you that give yourself to sin and it could affect your body for the rest of your life, right? Could my sin affect my children? Uh, certainly, and it does. Think of King David and his, and the, his sin's consequences. Scripture clearly teaches that the sins of the father are visited upon the children, Exodus 20, verse 5. On the other hand, you'll remember what it says in Ezekiel 18. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But it is clear that this verse is speaking of being judged for another person's sins. So in the final analysis, we will be judged for no sins but our own. Right? My parents' sins will not factor into that. But again, that doesn't take away any potential effects of that person's sins in his own life or in the lives of those around him here and now. Our sin has consequences, and we must always remember that. Remember it every time we are tempted. Right? If I give in to this temptation, this sin may have consequences that are not pleasant nor pleasurable. So another question is this, is all suffering due to sin? Uh, in, a, in some sense, yes, Adam's sin brought death and disease into the world. His sin is the very cause of every bit of physical suffering that ever was. But does my sin always have an outward effect on myself or on others? My own sin. By the grace of God, no. Right? By God's grace and His common grace, the effects of sin are often mitigated. If sin were not restrained by God's grace, violence and constant excruciating pain would rule everything. Not a healthy baby would be born if God's grace didn't mitigate the effects of sin. Not a solitary human being would do anything other than suffer. Now, how does Jesus answer their question, who sinned? He doesn't answer uh, with all the questions I just worked through. Jesus says this, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind, Jesus says, so that he might be healed. That's why he was born blind. And so that that healing would give glory to God. He was born blind for this moment that he's experiencing with Jesus. He was born blind so that his story would, would form a chapter of God's inerrant word. Right? He was born blind so that Jesus' power, Jesus' glory would be demonstrated. He was born blind to be a rebuke to the blasphemous Pharisees. He was a miracle waiting to happen. In this case, he was born blind not because of sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Had this man sinned? Well, yeah. No man is free of sin. He had sinned. Had his parents sinned? Yes, his parents had also sinned. Was that the cause of this man's blindness? No, it was not. God afflicted this man so that his life would be a testimony to God's work, to God's power, to God's glory. 
Now, does God still work in this way? Does God still work in this way? Does God give us hard things so that His glory might be shown forth? Um, yeah, you better believe it. Does God use affliction? Does He use painful difficulties? Does He use disease? Does He use losses? Does He use suffering for uh, His own always glorious end? Does God still work in this manner? Does He work in this manner in my life, in your life today? Is there a purpose in the suffering that God allows, that God sends? Now, some are dismissive of those kinds of questions, right? A man might acknowledge that sin and disease and affliction exist because of the fall, right? But in the next breath, claim God is not involved in working in its working out in my life. Uh, for some reason, many find comfort in thinking that when evil entered the world, God lost his power to harness it and utilize it for his end. Right? They somehow think they are protecting the reputation of God and his relationship to sin and suffering, even while denying his power and his sovereignty over it. But you know that God is very capable of using evil for his good. Think of Joseph. What his brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. Think of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? Delivered up into the hands of lawless men according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was there in the suffering of his son, most definitely at work, not somehow taking a chance and hoping things would work out in the end. Another person might say this, <clears throat> all pain, all suffering, all disease is a direct result of someone's sin, whether that of the person who is suffering or someone else's sin. Um, this is the implication of the apostle's question. Again, I agree to an extent. There is a sense in which we could tie all affliction to the sin of somebody else, right? Adam's sin afflicts all of us, and we all suffer under it. Because of Adam's sin, suffering, death, and all other sin entered into the world, yet this passage, given this passage where Jesus answers the question of the apostles, saying it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him, we do not want to make a one-to-one -one correspondence between sin and disease or sin and suffering. Think of Job. Job was afflicted because he was righteous, not because he was a sinner. The Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil? And then came the suffering. Satan was allowed to drag him into horrendous pain and all because Job was a blameless and upright man. Now the friends of Job tried and tried and tried to make Job understand that somewhere there was some heinous sin that had brought this on. Right? And God calls their counsel foolishness. So there is not a one-to-one -one correspondence between particular sins and particular afflictions or trials. Job teaches us that. Others give a more scientific answer to these questions about sin and disease. 
right? All pain, suffering, and disease is a direct result of someone's genetic makeup and has a scientific explanation. Really, I think this is our default position, right? It's because we have doctors who, who pull, do genetic studies of us when we get sick. Um, we are materialists and scientists when it comes to disease, and we only consult the doctors when we suffer. Remember King Asa, who, uh, Scripture says in his severe disease, did not seek the Lord, but only the physicians. Right? How many times have you been sick and run to your doctor without even thinking to pray? Perhaps you haven't. I have. I have quite a bit. Now, there's truth that genetics affects our bodies. Suffering and disease has a genetic component, and it also has a this results in that component. Yet, believing this, believing that there is a scientific explanation for our suffering should not in any way force God out of the picture. Yes, genetics can cause disease, but this cause was not unknown to the living God. He knows all things. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows and foreordains the afflictions you will endure. And he knows and foreordains these things for ultimate good. Right? That's, that is the Christian perspective. That God works through and knows and brings to us our suffering. This is why the man was born blind. There are those who reject this explanation and who hate this truth. Uh, a number of years ago, I don't know why I got on this topic or why I started reading a few books on this, but I started reading the, um, some books about biotechnology and transhumanism. Transhumanism is the quest, to, um, it's the quest for immortality through science. And so I read a book called Rapture, How Biotech Became the New Religion. The author, Brian Alexander, chronicles the use of biotechnology from its beginning in the early 20th century to the present, from in vitro fertilization to human growth hormone, to calorie-restricted diets, to anti-aging techniques, to cryonics. Think of Ted Williams and his poor head being cracked open. Uh, to stem cell replacement, to cloning, to genetic replacement theories, to genes as drugs, to regenerative medicine, all these things are what biotechnology firms are working on right now, all of the latest techniques. In the 80s, biotechnology firms like advanced cell technology and human genome sciences became mainstream, offering stock and rising in credibility and income. Both have, have become multi-billion dollar industries. Uh, leaders of these research facilities were well-educated academics like William Hazeltine, CEO of Human Genome Sciences, who was a tenured Harvard scientist. Before the 80s, when these big businesses with high-powered CEOs were trading on Wall Street, the, the extopians and transhumanists who believed technology and science could deliver immortality were meeting at huge conferences in usually California. Discussions of obscure proteins, high doses of vitamin C, calorie-restrictive diets fascinated these people who were hoping to extend 
their lives by 20, 30, 40, 50, or 100 years. But with the introduction of cellular level techniques like cloning and germline therapy, the hope of this new religion went beyond anti-aging to the pursuit of immortality. Right? Here's an excerpt of an interview of Hazeltine, one, once professor at Harvard and CEO of a billion-dollar corporation. He gives this, um, gives this interview in Life Extension magazine. Um, which I found by following a link from the Immortality Institute, whose motto is, for infinite lifespans. So the interviewer says, we're very interested in your viewpoint, viewpoint about human immortality. Could you please tell us what your view is on this subject? And He says, in the past few years, it has become possible for the first time to construct a scenario in which humans may become immortal by the systematic replacement of stem cells. Death is, not, <laughs> death is not an intrinsic property of life. Life is intrinsically immortal. Now, he stumbled on some truth there, right? We believe that, but in a completely different context. Life is intrinsically immortal. Our germ cells are the descendants of a 4 billion year old unbroken chain of cell divisions. The molecule that determines our structure and function, our DNA, has conveyed the basis of life continuously. There is no reason why DNA cannot continue to convey the basis of life for another 4 billion years. Nothing about life necessitates death. One theory of aging is that the stem cells in an individual age and eventually fail to reproduce. If stem cell death is the predominant driver of aging, then the solution is to replace old stem cells with young stem cells. That hypothesis will be tested first in animals and if results are positive in humans. And then he's asked this, for the first time though, it is conceptually possible to chart a path to human immortality? Whether that path will lead to success, nobody yet knows. Has anyone criticized you for even thinking about things like this? I do not believe people should be criticized for thinking, is his answer. Oh, it's so pretentious. So in the book Rapture that I referred to earlier, Hazeltine is quoted saying this, there is no reason why we can't live forever and there's no reason why we shouldn't. In a 1999 book, a writer with, with ties to the biotech world wrote, we can look forward to an age in which the understanding of life's mechanisms will be virtually total. From this understanding will come, if we choose, total control. So we, before we dismiss these transhumanists, we, just like the transhumanists and bio-utopians, desire to live forever. But we certainly do not want to live eternally here in this fallen life where no matter how sophisticated science gets, they will not be able to overcome the pain of sin and the reality of death. Right? Our desire is to live in a new heaven and a new earth where sin, disease, and death are defeated. In this place where God himself will be the sunlight, death will not even be a possibility 
And unlike immortality in a fallen world, negativity and psychological turmoil and jealousy and vanity and anger, name any sin, eternal life in heaven will be unblemished with those things, with any sin. It is ironic, isn't it, that those who want immortality in this life on their own terms will find it true on the day of judgment that soul and body are immortal, but they will suffer severe punishment as they experience the wrath of their Creator and the wrath of the very Creator of life. Their desire for immortality will be fulfilled in the most painful way. Yet those who are willing to accept suffering from the hand of the Creator will will find pleasures forevermore. They will drink and eat and sing and worship and rejoice without losing any strength. The quest of those bio-utopians will lead them to hell when faith in Jesus Christ would first allow them to accept suffering and death as a necessary and good part of this life. And second have what they desired, an imperishable body clothed in strength. Now, we do not know what God has in mind for our sanctification, right? We do not know fully. We have experienced some of what God has in mind for our sanctification. We do not fully know what he has in mind for our sanctification, just like this man who had endured at least 13 years of blindness. The, the passage says he was of age, which I'm, I'm assuming corresponds to 13. So that God's glory might be manifested, the Lord may bring us dizzying affliction in order to show himself at work. We don't know at what moment this might come. Some of you have experienced such trials for many, many years. Some this year, some of you will experience such things in years to come. The Lord may discipline this church in order to make it more holy and more useful to Him. Remember what Scripture says. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves. And He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have, you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we, had, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Trained by it. Discipline trains us. Why do we teach this and accept this, that God afflicts His children? Why do I brace myself and prepare myself for a time when the Lord may cause me to suffer? Because as the passage says, I'm a child of God and should expect it. When the affliction comes, whether it's psychological or physical, will I be able to understand that it came from a loving God's hand? 
or will I get clinical? In this area, God's affliction is one area we just don't like to think about. When disease or trial comes, we, we think in one of two ways. Either we think about it only clinically, I am sick because my colon didn't develop correctly and my immune system stopped working. Or we think about it like the disciples were thinking about the man born blind. I am afflicted because of this and that sin that was particularly heinous. Now, I believe both of those things can be true. But we don't think about things in this third way. I am sick, and though I don't understand now why, I trust that God is disciplining me for His glory. I may not get an explanation of this. Why don't we think about what God may be either keeping us from or leading us to in our trial? Peter says, in this, God's great salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God will allow us to undergo various trials because when we endure by faith through these trials, we are sanctified and most importantly, He receives the glory due His name. How does God receive glory in our afflictions? And that seems twisted in ways, doesn't it? How does God receive glory in our afflictions? He receives glory in this, these ways. First, affliction gives glory to God in that it shows us our sins. When things are going well, a man might well believe he is humble. He might well believe that he has a thankful heart. But as soon as affliction comes, he sees his true ways. When affliction comes, pride and ungratefulness boils to the surface and recognizing it, recognizing what boils up, he can then repent, and that gives glory to God. Second, affliction gives glory to God in that it draws us away from our constant temptation to love this world. And we know from James' epistles that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Anything, anything including or especially including affliction that draws us away from the world will put our minds more on heaven and will bring God glory. Third, affliction gives God glory in that He uses it to conform us to His Son, Jesus. God is jealous to bestow glory on His Son. When Jesus was baptized, God expressed His love for His Son by saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus knew trials and afflictions. And we are called to experience the same thing. God gives us a measure of what He gave to His Son. And we give glory to Christ when we acknowledge God even in our afflictions, especially in our afflictions. Fourth, affliction gives God glory in that it makes us hate our sin. We could say that God gives us medicine which cures us of the disease of sin. I remember... Uh, a dear friend of mine lamenting the sins that he had just committed and saying that he longed to be, to be back in the hospital undergoing radical and painful treatments for cancer that had spread through his body, of which he had been cured. 
God takes away our desire for sin when he sends us affliction. And when we desire him, we are giving him glory. Fifth, affliction gives, glory, gives God glory in that it rebukes those who hate God. Think of the story we read in John 9. This man's affliction allowed those events to take place and served as an opportunity for glory to be given to Jesus. The man who was hauled, who was healed, has, as a, has a matter-of-fact boldness before the Pharisees. We didn't read the rest of the passage, but after he's healed, it's one of the, my favorite passages of Scripture because he just goes after the Pharisees who are so angry at him that he would have received this blessing from God. And when all, uh, all is done, the man believes on Jesus and he worships him. And though the Pharisees kick the man out of the synagogue, he finds true worship. Though he's been forced out of the synagogue, he finds Jesus. And the Pharisees are condemned then for their blindness. They are blinded and the blind man sees. In the end, I ask myself this. If God is severe to me, if God is severe to me, Will I really believe his will is for good? And that he is doing so because he knows exactly how to refine me. He knows exactly how to protect me. He knows exactly how to love me. Or will I become a scoffer, bitter toward God, a hater of the doctrine of God's providence? Will I be able to say, I know this trial is from your hand and I wish you to take it away, but as long as it remains, I pray that your glory is manifested. Will I ask why he is doing this and look at myself with humility? Am I only willing to see God in his mercy and not in his severity? If, or, or, or should I say when, God ordains these trials. Will I sing this from the Psalms? I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Though I see evil men prospering and godly men of the church battered and afflicted, will I say this is unjust? Or will I say God has no regard for the ungodly? He disciplines His children. He is delaying the unbeliever's affliction for an eternal punishment, but he wants me to bring him glory in the holiness that comes from affliction. Right? There, this is true no matter how clean you eat, no matter how organic your products, how new your next drug is, no matter how much kombucha is in your system. No matter how free-ranging the animals you ate and digested were before you ate and digested them, you may have always believed in Jesus. You may have determined that you were going to avoid mercury in vaccines. But God still has a sovereign right to bring Himself glory by severely afflicting your bodies. Is that depressing to you? It should not be. God intends to receive glory from His children. 
And one way He does that is by afflicting us so that we come to depend upon Him in new and fresh ways. Do we hope that our children are afflicted? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We hope that our children are afflicted so that they learn what we perhaps have learned. God intends to receive glory from His children, and one way He does that is by afflicting us so that we come to depend upon Him in new and fresh ways. Some of you may want to blame science, and blame modern drugs, and blame technology, and blame innovation for your illnesses and autoimmune issues, but what you are really doing is blaming God, who is sovereign over all that afflicts you. There may be no explanation for your affliction other than that your Father in Heaven is loving you. In fact, there is no other explanation than that your Father in Heaven is loving you. Again, as I said earlier, God has no regard for the ungodly. He disciplines His children. He is delaying the unbeliever's affliction for an eternal punishment, but He wants me to bring Him glory and the holiness that comes from affliction. I pray that we all understand this. What a testimony to the world that goes to any lengths, even denying a Creator to avoid pain and disease. Job says, though He slay me, I will hope in Him. Right? Paul writes to the Corinthians, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen are eternal. Be prepared for the time when God will discipline you because God, He disciplines His children. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. When God is harsh, when God disciplines you, look for Him and His reasons in the affliction. Look for the blessings that will follow from it. It very well may be that He is looking to manifest His work in you, His glory by you. But how easy it is to listen to Job's wife, right? Her, her simple but common advice, curse God and die. You hurt, you should curse God and die. You've been afflicted with sores and boils and the loss of your children and the loss of your wealth and the loss of everything. Curse God and die. Will you love every fiber of God's providential work in your lives? Beyond that, will you begin to understand that it is for your witness this is for your witness. When you suffer well, when you, when you are afflicted and you praise God. How easy it is to praise God when He's just heaping, you know, 
marshmallows in your lap. But how powerful when you can sing God's praises when He has given you chronic pain in your back. Right? This is your witness. It's your opportunity to manifest the very works of God. It's your very opportunity to follow Jesus in His own sufferings. And that's, it's your very opportunity to to anticipate the time when Jesus says to you, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into rest. Right? The rest will come. The peace and the, the end of affliction will come. But for now, God afflicts His children that His glory might be revealed through them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that You are a Father who scourges His sons. We acknowledge that, that the pain and suffering that we have, have experienced, some of which has come by our own sin, some of which has come by our genetics, but all of which has come by Your providential hand. Father, I pray that our sufferings would lead us not to become embittered against You, but that our sufferings would cause us to cry out to You, to rejoice in the coming Sabbath. Father, to, to, to depend upon You fully, even as Jesus did. So, Father, help us in this. Help us, especially in those moments when Things seem very dark and we feel very lonely and we can't think of anything other than what hurts. I pray even, even then we would think of your powerful hand bringing good out of suffering. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.